Praise the Lord. I'm going to start this evening in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 2. There's a, the scriptures we want to get to are in Numbers 21, but um, uh, we want to give you some background information on uh, the children of Israel. This is after they've missed out on their opportunity to go into the promised land uh, as identified in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And so they're wandering in the wilderness for uh, the 40 years that they spent out there. Numbers chapter 20 beginning in verse 2 it says, And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought us up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring, unto, bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Now the, the, uh, the way that this is written here, it's unclear whether it's saying he hit the rock twice, or if it's talking about this is the second time that he hit the rock. Now let me uh, explain that a little bit. Earlier on, when the children of Israel first came out of the wilderness, or came out of um, Egypt, I'm sorry, to go to the, the place where God was going to lead them to the promised land and so forth, they came upon another situation, another place. Actually, it was the same place. It's the same rock, same location. But they came to a place where there was no water to feed, uh, or to uh, quench the thirst of the people or water the cattle and all the animals that they had with them. And so as a sign, one of the um, uh, most important types God had planned for the, uh, the Old Testament to be revealed in this place because Moses stood before the congregation and he hit the rock and he was supposed to that's what God told him to do to strike the rock and uh, that signified both of these things signify something about Jesus that signifies that Jesus would be smitten stricken of God you may remember in Isaiah 53 it says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains griefs is the word sickness sorrows is the word pains surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains but we esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted and so where it talks about being smitten of God and afflicted, that's what the type of, that's what this rock was a type of that Jesus would fulfill. It's talking about the crucifixion. But the second time they come to this place where God tells Moses to speak to the rock, that's a type of the new covenant. That's a type of us reaping the benefits or re, uh, receiving the benefits of what Jesus paid for, not by him being stricken. He didn't have to go back to the cross the second time for us to receive healing or anything else that he paid for. We receive it under the new covenant by speaking 
by the words of our mouth, through faith, exercise of faith, through the words of our mouth. So when Moses hits the rock the second time, I'm of the opinion that it's saying that he hit the rock the second time rather than hit the rock twice. When he strikes the rock the second time, he's messing up God's type. He's messing up what Jesus was supposed to fulfill according to the new covenant blessings that I spoke about just a minute ago that I explained just a second ago about we receive by faith through our confession. And this was a big deal with God. So Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice or the second time. And the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron and said, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Verse 14, And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel, Thou knowest all the travail that has befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptian vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel and has brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uppermost of thy border. Now, Edom is the uh, descendant or the, uh, the tribe of people that were descended from Esau. You remember uh, the story about how Jacob and Esau were twins, born unto uh, Rebekah. Isaac was their father. And they were twins, and Esau was the older brother. But you remember how that Jacob cunningly, mischievously, dishonestly, stole the birthright from his brother. He tricked his father Isaac, whose eyes were dimmed, by putting on animal skins. And when Isaac started trying to feel around, he couldn't see when he started trying to feel around who this was. He said, you've got the voice of Jacob, but you've got the arms, the hairy arms of Esau. So long story short, Isaac pronounced the, the firstborn blessing upon Jacob and not Esau. And even though there were times where they were reunited, meaning Jacob and Esau, this was something that was um, hard felt throughout the years and through their descendants. So they're petitioning cousins, kinsmen. They're asking to be able to go through their land, the land of Edom, and they'll try to make arrangements and, and restitution for anything that they use or whatever. But the Edomites resisted them. So they said in verse 17, Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. So they're trying to do this right. They're trying to be, do right by them. But the king of Edom said unto them, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with a sword. In other words, he's saying, you come into our territory and the boundaries of our land, we will fight you. And the children of Israel said unto him, we'll go by the highway. If I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I'll pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. Now let's go to, verse, uh, to chapter 21. We've got the, the back story going here. Verse 1, 
And when the king Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, he then fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So that if they went through the land of Edom, Edom would fight them. But since they didn't go through the land of Edom, then they've got other enemies that come out against them too. But notice how they responded. Verse 2. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then will I utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. Verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or to encircle, to go around the boundaries of the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people died. Now let me make some explanation here too. Here where it says the Lord sent fiery serpents. We've uh, mentioned several times and we've given you some historical references and and the ability to find it if you want to. Dr. Robert Young, who was one of the most, uh, one of the foremost Hebrew scholars of the previous generation, wrote in his book, Bible Hints to, or Hints to Bible Interpretation, I think the name of it was. It's been out of print forever and, um, uh, and, and there doesn't seem to be any copy anywhere to get a hold of. But he said the same things in the, uh, the, the footnotes, the introductory notes to his concordance. He wrote a, or put together a concordance of both the Hebrew and the, the Greek for the New Testament. Everybody uses Strong's now, but, uh, but that wasn't always the case. Young's was very much more um, to be used and was used before Strong's came along. Strong's codified some of the numbers, and that's why it became a, a favorite. But anyway, Dr. Young uh, wrote about the Hebrew language. He said there are permissive verbs that are used in the Hebrew language that the, uh, that the English language doesn't have. So where it says in many cases the Lord sent, as in this case, the Lord sent fiery serpents, it just simply means he allowed fiery serpents. Now there are places in the, in the Scripture where it tells us that this land that Israel went through the uh, 40 years in the wilderness, that was a land that was full of fiery serpents. It was full of poisonous snakes, venomous snakes. And the important thing I think to realize here is that they only had occasion to deal with these fiery serpents even though they lived throughout the land. And folks, remember, these are, this is a crowd of millions of people that's traveling from one place to another. There are millions of people. We don't know exactly how many. The least estimate I've ever heard was 3 million. The highest estimate I've ever heard was 7. But if we take the small numbers, the most conservative estimate, moving 3 million people from point A to point B is a monumental task. I saw something one time where it showed uh, uh, a man that was in the Army Corps of Engineers. And he was responsible for uh, provisions and, and things like that where the movement of armies were concerned. And so since it was right up his alley, he was a Christian man and he identified how much provisions it would take for the, this crowd, the size of this crowd. And it was astronomical. I mean, it was train loads after train loads after train loads. 50 miles worth of train cars to feed this amount of people or to take care of them for any length of time, any period of time. 
And God took care of them every day. It's one of the biggest miracles in the world that God was able to provide for these people in a land where they couldn't grow crops in a wilderness that was hostile to them. And so since this land, this territory that they went through, the wilderness that they went through, had fiery serpents in it, it was known for these things. They were very well populated in this, uh, in this wilderness that they passed through. The remarkable thing is that they never really had to deal with the fiery serpents until you get stories like this. So it seems that what happened is the protecting hand of God was keeping the, the fiery serpents away or at bay from these people, these millions of people, until they murmured against Moses and sinned. And when that happened, they lifted, uh, through their own sin, the hand of God, the protective hand of God lifted, and the fiery serpents came into the camp. So let's go back to where we were in verse 6. And the Lord sent or allowed fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Now, I want you to notice the next chapter, the next verse very carefully, because a lot of people will take the, the, the scripture above, the Lord sent these things uh, among the people, according to the English language, and they, they think that that somehow changes the character and the nature of God, that God brings evil upon his people, and um, uh, sickness, disease, calamity, or whatever. And that's never been the case. Where would God get sickness to bring to his people? Sicknesses of the devil. The Bible's real clear on that. Acts 10.38, Peter preaching to Cornelius' household said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So it tells us that healing is good. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning Neither the, uh, neither the shadow, not even a possibility of any type for God to change. So if healing is good, sickness can be. And that verse, Acts 10, 38, tells us that sickness is of the devil. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Therefore the people came to Moses, verse 7, and said, We have sinned. Now, folks, remember who this is. This is the group of people that have been eating manna every day. Miraculously, every day, no matter where they are, they go out in the morning and food is laying on the ground. The best description I think we can get of manna is it would be some kind of, like some kind of honey cake that's on the ground. And they're gathering it up to be used day after day after day after day. Just one day's supply. Give us this day our daily bread takes on a different meaning when you think about manna. And by the same token, water. And God has shown them. He's revealed to them. On two separate occasions, he provided for them in other ways at different times too. But on two separate occasions, he brought water out of a rock. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't really consider rocks to be the best source of water. But nothing's too big for God. They, uh, they think, at least, that they've identified or located this rock because it's so unusual, it's, it's almost impossible for it to be anything else. But they found this rock, and it's a giant thing. It's probably as tall as the uh, rafters here, the uh, things on the ceiling. And it's split down the middle. It's separated by a giant split. And there's no way whatsoever that... that 
any natural occurrence could have caused that split. And the rock and the rocks around it, it's on a, uh, on a higher ground. The rocks around it and lower than it are all smoothed out like there was some kind of river or something that eroded the rocks away and made them smooth. And it's the only place in the wilderness or the desert that they can find anything like that. But notice what the people said. Even though God has provided for them time after time after time, they know the principle. Remember, it was just Numbers 13 and 14 where they found out where God, when they refused to go in because of their unbelief, thinking that the people of the land were stronger than God is and therefore stronger than them. They know what God told them. He said in Numbers chapter 14, I will deal with you according as you've spoken in my ears. They know this principle, folks. They understand it. They've experienced it in the worst possible way. But what do they do? Situation after situation after situation, they still speak against God and against Moses. And they do here. And so they recognized that the entrance into the camp of these fiery serpents wasn't God's doing. They didn't blame God. They didn't say God's done us wrong. They said we have sinned. Now what does that identify? That identifies that they know how this is supposed to work. If you obey God's commandments, if you do what God says to do, he takes care of you. If you don't, calamity and destruction comes. And they recognize that in this case or this situation. They said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass he lived now I want to skip over real quickly to John chapter 3 Jesus is going to uh, mention this event that took place in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21 uh, I don't want to read the whole thing the first, uh, first part of the chapter well, really, even down to where we're reading, Nicodemus comes to Jesus during the night because he's afraid of the other Jewish leaders. He seems to be a rabbi or somebody in high esteem with, uh, among the Jew- Jewish leaders. And so he starts talking to, him, uh, talking to Jesus about the works that are to be done. And Jesus tells him about being born again, being the entrance to the kingdom of God and the blessings of God. And he says down in verse 14, John three fourteen. Jesus is speaking and he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 16 is the favorite verse of so many. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Back up again to verse 14. Jesus says what Moses did in the wilderness was a type of him. We don't have to try to put together the types and say, well, this is what happened in the old covenant like we did with the striking of the rock the first time and the intended speaking under the rock the second time. We don't have to go back and say, here's how this fits and here's why. Because this is one situation where Jesus says, this is a part of what I'm going to do. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. Of course, he's talking about the crucifixion. So if we go back to Numbers 
chapter 21. We'll start again in verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. We want that protective hand of God back on us again. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, not gold. It looks like gold, but it's not. A serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, folks, there are a couple of things about this story that you need to see. And that is the cure for people that had been bitten by these fiery serpents, these poisonous snakes. The cure was to look on that which was a type of Jesus. Now, remember, it's a serpent of brass on the pole. It's not a lamb. It's not some sacrificial animal that we would expect. It's a serpent of brass. Now, why was Moses instructed by God to make a serpent of brass? Because Jesus was made sin for us. It's an indication that on the cross, Jesus had made sin. He didn't die as the Lamb of God in that instance. He died on the cross by being made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So it's, a, it's showing us the real work of Jesus on the cross, which was to be made sin. And the reason he was made sin is to take your place and be your substitute and be mine. So here where it says, notice it says, as many as looked upon it or beheld the serpent of brass, they lived. Now here's the, the New Testament type of that. They had to keep their eyes on what Jesus represented or what represented Jesus. They had to keep their eyes on that which Jesus said pertained to himself. They had to keep their eyes on the serpent of brass. In other words, they had to look up to what was on the top of the pole. Now, what's the difficulty with that? Well, what's at their feet? The fiery serpents are at their feet. And don't you know, once these fiery serpents started coming into the camp, everybody among these millions of people, everybody is watching every step that they take. If there was ever in their minds a time to look down at the ground and be sure that you're, the steps you take are sure, this would be it. But the instruction was, as many as beheld or fixed their attention, fixed their gaze on the serpent of brass on top of the pole, they would live. It's a type of our faith looking away from the circumstances and looking under what Jesus has done for us. Now, one of the meanings of this word look means to give attention to or to give heed. Do you remember in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is telling the parable of the sower sowing the word? Do you remember what the, the whole purpose of the parable is? The purpose of the parable and the teaching that Jesus does for his disciples, the explanation that he gives to his disciples about the parable is all about the attention you give to the word. It's all about taking heed to what the Word of God says instead of looking at the, the um, circumstances. And over and over again in that, uh, in that parable, it talks about the sower sowing the Word. The seed that he plants is the Word of God. How do you plant the Word of God in your life? By speaking it. By speaking it. 
And folks, once that seed is planted, the seed of God's word, and there's nothing more powerful than God's word in the universe. Nothing can stop the power of God's word from coming to pass if you do two things. One is plant it by speaking it into your life, and the second is water it. If you water it, plant it the way it should be planted through the spoken word. If you water it, then you're giving attention to it and nothing can keep it from producing results. The law of Genesis is that everything produces after its own kind. Well, then what does the word of God produce after its own kind? What that means is if you speak healing scriptures, then it'll produce healing. If you speak prosperity uh, uh, scriptures, it'll produce prosperity. If you speak scriptures containing to peace, it'll produce peace. Turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 10, Isaiah said, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, but waters the earth. Literally, it means returns not there, but until after it waters the earth. And makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He's talking about the water cycle. He's talking about how rain comes down from heaven, it waters the earth, then it evaporates and goes back up into the heavens. And the whole thing starts, the cycle starts over and over again. And that's the way that water produces on the earth because it waters the seed that's been planted before it evaporates and heads back to heaven. Now notice verse 11. He says, so shall my word be. In other words, he's saying that just like the sower sowing the word parable tells us about planting the seed. Remember one of the types of ground, the stony ground, had no uh, depth of earth is the way the King James translates it. It literally means it had no moisture. In other words, it means that good seed was planted but wasn't attended to. And so it didn't produce anything. Well, how are we to attend to it? How are we to water it and provide it moisture? Isaiah said it's through the word too. He said just like rain comes down and provides for the ground and the seeds that are planted in the ground, it says so shall my word be. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. What does it do? Just like the rain, it waters the seed of God's word that's planted. If you've spoken healing scriptures over yourself and over your body, then that means the more you speak God's word, the more and more and more it waters the seed. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing. Whereto I sent it. Again, that means prosperity scriptures produce prosperity. Healing scriptures produce healing. Scriptures about peace produce peace. Forgiveness scriptures produce forgiveness of sins. Everything produces according to what God said that it would do. Now, folks, if you plant the seed and water the seed, there's only one thing that can keep that seed from bringing forth the harvest that it's intended to produce. And that's if you dig it up. Once it's spoken, once it's watered, and watering is a continual process. But if you keep the seed in the ground, the devil can't stop it. If you keep the seed in the ground, the devil can't stop it. Now let me bring something else to your attention about that story in Numbers chapter 21. Remember they identified what the problem was in verse 4? They went to Moses and said, we have sinned. Well, sin is what brought the judgment against them. Sin is what 
removed the protective hand of God so that the snakes came in among the people and, and bit many of them and many of them died. But if healing was the only thing that was provided for by the type of Jesus, the serpent of brass on the pole, if healing was provided for and in, in, uh, forgiveness of sins was not, then the snakes would just bite the people again. There would still be that lack of God's protective hand upon the people. My point is simply this. It had to do with twofold work. Looking at the serpent of brass on the pole had to provide for two different things. One, forgiveness of sins, which was their original problem, or brought about the original problem. And the second was that which is a type of healing for their bodies, recovering from the snake bite. Now, folks, there is without doubt, it is incontrovertible that time and time and time again, the Bible links sin and sickness together. Again, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. King James says griefs and sorrows, but it's sickness and pains. But we esteemed him smitten of God, judged and smitten of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions, that's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities, that's sin too. The only difference between those two must be original sin and personal sin. Jesus paid the price for both. See, if he hadn't paid the price for original sin, then it wouldn't do any good for you and I to be forgiven of our own personal sins. Because the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man, Adam is talking about, sinned, it opened the door to spiritual death, and that spiritual death passed upon all men. So Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace or prosperity was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. In other words, it's saying the same blood that paid for transgressions and iniquities paid for sickness and disease. The same blood that Jesus shed that was a worthy ransom to provide redemption, forgiveness of sins, literally the removal of sins from us was the blood that he shed when he took stripes upon his back to pay the price for sickness and disease. Psalm 103. About verse 2 it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Well, what benefits are there? He forgiveth all thy iniquities. He healeth all thy diseases. David, the psalmist, didn't make any distinction between the price that was paid for sickness and disease and the price that was paid for sin. None whatsoever. He forgiveth all thine iniquities. He healeth all thy diseases. He redeems thy life from destruction and crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Again, it's incontrovertible. A lot of people won't admit it, but they can't disprove it. But it's incontrovertible, the connection that God made between the price the shedding of Jesus' blood for sins and iniquities, transgressions and iniquities, and sickness and disease. No difference whatsoever. Now, the New Testament has two commentaries on that verse. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Matthew eight seventeen quotes Isaiah, Jesus healed all that were sick, 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, I think it is. It says, who his own body bear our sins in the tree, upon the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What does he connect? He connects healing with the forgiveness of sins. It's time after time after time in the scripture, folks. Even in James chapter 5, about verse 14, it says, Is any sick among you? The only instruction that's given to the church concerning healing. Is any sick among you, James asked. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It's not the elders that saves or heals the sick. It's not the anointing with oil that heals the sick. The prayer of faith saves or heals the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And the next verse says, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Folks, you can't separate sin, the price for sin, and the price Jesus paid for sickness and disease. You can't separate them. It's there time after time. Now, Jesus said, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I gave you about five. And we could dig and search for more and come up with a big, long list. But the reality is, the same price that paid for sins, paid for sickness and disease. Now, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Notice verse 12. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful. Remember, the word is the seed that's planted, and the word of God is the, is the watering system for that seed. For the word of God is quick and powerful. One translation says, Full of life and power, and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice the first phrase again The word of God is quick and powerful. It's quick and powerful. It's alive, full of life. It's powerful. What can stop God's word from coming to pass? There is no power in the universe that can do it. Now, don't get me wrong. We can fail to receive because we don't do what he said to, to, uh, was necessary to take hold of it. We can ch uh, choose to ignore the things that Jesus paid for, for both sins and sickness. That's man's choice, and man that makes that choice forfeits eternal life and forfeits the life of God and the benefits of the life of God in us now while we're here still on the earth. So it's not an automatic thing unless you add faith to it. But once you add faith to it, once you mix faith with what the Word of God says and understand that it's the attention you give to the Word that you plant in your heart, in other words, you see the need and the uh, responsibility. Take the responsibility to water the word by speaking what God said about whatever you need. We're talking about healing because this is healing school, but it works the same in every area. Once you plant that seed in the ground and continue to water it, nothing can stop that word from producing results. God said, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. What do you mean void? The word void means empty. He says, it shall not return unto me empty of power. 
but it shall accomplish that which I please. Well, what does God please? He was pleased to give us healing scriptures to provide healing for our physical bodies. He was pleased for Jesus to be smitten, to pay the price once and for all for sin and sickness. He's pleased for that to be offered and afforded to us simply by faith, just like the forgiveness of sins is concerned. Now, nobody will argue. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Everybody understands that the way to salvation is to believe in your heart and say with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Now, a lot of times that confession is not uh, in many denominational circles and so forth. That confession is not specific about confessing Jesus or, or claiming him to be your Lord and Savior. But anything related to that, anything close to that, like people asking Jesus to come into their hearts, that satisfies. That's the same equivalent. But it's all still the same principle. Believe in your heart and say with your mouth. And that is so important. That is such the foundational principle whereby everything, anything and everything that Jesus paid the price for is received. That's why it was such a harsh penalty for Moses when he struck the rock the second time. Because God didn't want anybody to think under any circumstances that the price had not already been paid. See, folks, if Jesus has anything left to do to make your healing available, then he has no business sitting down at the right hand of God. The work's not finished yet. But thank God it's been finished. And thank God we have his word that tells us unequivocally that it's God's will for everybody to be healed just like it's his will for everybody to be saved. Now, will everybody be saved? The Bible says they won't. But whose choice is that? Theirs or God's? It's theirs. They're the one that decides for themselves. Every individual decides for themselves what they will have. When we put that in the context of eternal life, we understand that very well. It's easy to understand. Jesus paid the price for everybody to be saved. Jesus said, whosoever will come unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. But it's up to the individual to come. It's his choice, your choice, my choice, everybody's choice on whether or not they will come to Jesus and accept him and his sacrifice as being sufficient as their substitute in confessing his Lord and Savior. We understand that. We understand every denomination understands that if somebody doesn't make Jesus the Lord of their lives, then heaven is not their resting place. Heaven is not their destination. Hell is. But by the same token, there are other things that Jesus paid for with the same blood that he bought redemption for us from sin. The same blood that was shed and spilled to pay the price for sickness and disease so that we can enter into healing. You receive healing by faith just like you receive eternal life. Believe in your heart and say with your mouth. Well, what should we believe in our heart? We've given you a lot of examples where Jesus paid the price, where the Bible proves that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease just like he paid the price for sin. So since we receive eternal life and redemption from sin by believing that God raised him from the dead for the purpose of being our Savior and confess him as Lord and Savior, then we're saved. By the same token, when we realize the truth of the Scriptures that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease by the same blood that he shed for us to have eternal life. Then if we believe in our heart that he paid that price too. 
God raised him from the dead, not only to be our Savior, not only to be our substitute, not only to be our Lord, but to be our healer as well. Then the confession of our mouth completes the faith cycle or the faith circle. And all that's left for us is to keep the seed planted in the ground and water it by speaking the word. When you understand how much the Bible puts together sin and sickness, both the characteristics of spiritual death so that life and healing are available to each and every one of us, there's really no way that an intelligent, knowledgeable person concerning the scriptures could ever wonder whether it's God's will to heal everybody. There's no doubt whatsoever if you believe the Bible to be true. Now, I know a lot of people rely on other things. You can always find somebody that will tell a story about some dear Christian that loved God with all their heart and was a wonderful, wonderful Christian, and they died sick or died of sickness. Well, we can't discount that they love God. We must accept that they were a wonderful Christian. But that doesn't mean that they knew what the Bible said about healing. And it doesn't mean that they were willing to extend their faith to receive healing just like they've received eternal life. But if we accept the word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, if we accept the word of God as the final answer for every situation, then there's no way you can doubt that it's God's will to heal everyone. So then it's left to us to simply follow the circle. Speak the word concerning healing. Keep watering the word and make sure it stays in the ground. What plucks it up from the ground or what digs it up from the ground? If we speak contrary to God's word. If we say what the circumstances tell us instead of what the word tells us. See folks. If it wasn't necessary for faith. Well let me say it in a different way. If everything that you believe for always looked like it was working there'd be no real evidence of faith because faith is the evidence of things not seen so people get bent out of shape when they believe or extend their faith to believe begin to quote the word speak the word over their bodies and their bodies don't immediately change because it doesn't always work right away but they think when their body doesn't change that somehow or another this faith message is wrong and folks if the faith message is wrong then nobody's saved and there is no church Because every one of us, every person that ever becomes a part of the family of God, everyone receives salvation by faith. There's no other way to get it. There's no other way to receive. There's no other way to enter into God's family. And since faith is the evidence of things not seen, we have to learn. And you can only learn by experience. But we have to learn that because things don't look like they're changing our body, as long as we're doing our part by believing in our heart, contrary to the symptoms... And confessing with our mouth that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses with his stripes we are healed. If we do that and keep the seed planted so that it can grow roots and take root. Then there's nothing the devil can do to stop it. The devil is not strong enough in any way whatsoever to overcome the power of God's word. Jesus said several different times, several different places... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. 
the possibility for failure. If you speak the word and continue to speak the word, continue to wander the word, the possibility for failure to receive your healing does not exist. God's done his part. He made the seed powerful enough to overcome anything and everything that's out there. So if we do our part, there is no possibility of failure. If we keep speaking the word of God, no matter what symptoms are in our body, that keeps the seed planted in the earth, the earth being our lives. And nothing the devil has is strong enough to overcome God's word. There is no possibility for failure if we plant the word and keep it watered. None whatsoever. It may not work as fast as we want to or want it to. It may not happen in the way that we had planned. You remember when Naaman came to Elisha? Naaman was a captain of the guard of one of the enemy nations of Israel, and he had leprosy. And through part of the, the spoils of the conquest of, that the army of Syria had uh, accomplished, Naaman had this little servant girl that was a Jew. She had been taken captive as a young maiden. And apparently she liked working for her masters. They treated her well because when this guy did whatever he could to be healed or to break free from the, uh, the curse of leprosy, she finally said, you know, there's a prophet over in Israel and he can heal you. Well, I imagine he was desperate. I doubt if he went to her for all of her all of his medical information. But apparently he was desperate enough to go find out for himself. So he went to where Elisha was. Announced that he was there and he was a great man of importance. And Elisha didn't even come out to the porch. Elisha just sent word to him said go dip in the river Jordan seven times. You'll come again clean. Well he was mad about that. How dare this prophet Treat him like that, like some commoner. He didn't even gain an audience with Elisha. But finally, the people that were around him said, Now, wait a minute, Master. If he asked you to do something hard, you'd do that. Or in other words, if he asked you to do something that was really out of the ordinary, that you could attach some importance on this action as bringing forth your healing, you'd do that. He was complaining about how dirty the Jordan River was. He wants me to go dunk in dirty water. We've got better rivers than that in Syria. But they finally talked him into doing it. And when he came up the seventh time from dipping in the Jordan River, he came again clean. Now he's a happy guy. But what the Bible says he had in mind was that when he went to Elisha, he thought that Elisha would at least come outside and strike his hand over the place where the leprosy was in healing. And folks, a lot of Christians are looking for something like that too. A lot of Christians are looking for God to do something, to move in some spectacular way for them to receive their healing. Well, if that's the way God wants to do it, I'm all for that. But I find that those times are much more rare than people that receive their healing by believing and confessing God's word for health. But if we do our part by speaking the word and keeping it watered, there's nothing the devil has. There is no power in the universe that's strong enough to keep God's word from coming to pass. It just doesn't exist. Therefore, our possibility for failure is absolutely zero. 
Absolutely zero. No possibility for failure whatsoever. Because God's word's true. God watches over his word to perform it. And as we've looked at several times, or spoken about several times already this evening, heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of God will never fail. The earth with its sin and sickness culture will pass away, but God's word will never fail. It'll never fail. Let's lift our hands and thank him tonight. Father, we bless you. We thank you that your word is the most powerful thing that there is. So we speak your word over our bodies. We say that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we are healed. We say by planting the word of God into our lives that you restore us to health and heal our wounds. We say that the yoke of sickness is broken by the anointing the healing power of God that resides within us. We say, by his stripes we are healed. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your benefits. You forgive our iniquities. You heal our diseases, all our diseases. You redeem our lives from destruction. And you crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy. You satisfy our mouths, Lord with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of the seed of your word planted in our lives. We choose to continue to water it and say only that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that you bring it to pass every time for everyone that meets the qualifications that we've just described. We thank you, Father. We love you. And we bless you for your goodness to heal us. No matter what the situation, no matter what the condition, no matter how long it's been, little or great, it's all the same to you. Jesus paid the price for it. Thank you, Father, for bringing it to pass in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being.